Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to the Corbett Report. James Corbett here of CorbettReport.com, coming to you in August, October of 2022 with questions for Corbett, specifically episode 91 for those keeping track at home. And this week, we're going to look at a question that came in through the contact form on CorbettReport.com from Patrick, who writes, This ad popped up on YouTube, and it struck me as the weirdest thing, kind of creepy almost. I spent a year in Japan as a little kid in 1970 when my father was working at the expo, and after that, Japan always remained a big part of my childhood. I remember asking specifically about the Rising Sun flag, and was told that Japan was forbidden to fly it as a condition of surrender after World War II since it symbolized the empirical, imperial aspirations of the country. According to the ad, the flag is flying on Japan Maritime Self-Defense Force Vessels, perhaps the most long-winded euphemism for Navy ever. (laughs) What is happening in Japan? Is the Empire awakening? Okay, thank you for the question, Patrick. It's a good question. And actually, you're very right to pick up on this ad and the, the, the creepiness of it, although it's just an ad about a flag, right? <laughs> well, let's take a look. The Rising Sun Flag It's a part of Japanese culture. Like Japan's national flag, the Rising Sun flag symbolizes the sun. This Rising Sun design is a symbol of auspiciousness, success, and positive energy. For centuries, the design has been an integral part of Japanese life as a good luck charm, shown, for example, in woodblock prints and sumo wrestlers' ceremonial aprons. This centuries-old tradition lives on today at celebratory occasions, such as seasonal festivals, 60th birthdays, and weddings. It's for celebrating, or wishing for, a big catch of fish, prosperous business, and other auspicious events. It's also for fans at sporting events to cheer on and encourage athletes to win. The flag is also used at local festivals. And it's also historically been associated with Japanese militarism and imperial war crimes and has been the source of great controversy, even call it causing people to kill themselves. Anyway, look at these flashy graphics. <laughs> yeah, hmm, it is kind of strange. Even if you don't know the context of what is being discussed here, it does seem a little bit strange that the Japanese Ministry of Foreign Affairs would go out of their way to create the flashy, cool, J-pop artistic rendering of the Japanese rising sun flag and do a little history of it and make it all poppy like that. But for those who do know a little bit of the subtext, it is actually actively a little bit creepy, as Patrick indicates in his question. But in order to understand why that is, I guess a little bit of history might be in order. So I will throw in the explain it like I'm five kind of basic YouTube beginner tutorial about um, what happened to the old Japanese flag, which does a good enough job of giving you some of the basic details of this. Um, But long story shorter, there are a couple of flags that are associated with Japan and have been for some time. Uh, The one that you know as the Japanese flag, the national flag of Japan, is formerly known as the Hinomaru, which means the circle of the sun. It is 
It is meant to represent, obviously, the red sun on that white background. And that makes sense because Japan, the name Japan, is Nippon, which literally means sun origin. And that's where we derive the English expression, land of the rising sun, right? Right. So um, that's one flag that has long been associated with Japan. And there is another flag, the rising sun flag. There are variations of it, of how many bars are radiating from the sun and what color red is being used, etc. But the rising sun flag generally referred to um, in Japanese as Kyokujitsuki. And that flag has historically been associated with the Japanese navy and army and specifically the imperial army and navy. So the the history of this in 1870 the hinomaru which as i say had been associated with japan and had been depicted in various contexts but it was made the official national slash merchant flag of japan in 1870 and the kyokujitsuki was made the uh the uh, official war war flag of the imperial army and in 1889 it was made the official flag of the japanese imperial navy but in 1885, so 1870, here is the official national flag. Here it is. Okay, and it's made, uh, there's a law and everything, you know, it's formally done. But in 1885, that was formally undone. <laughs> so that Japan, once again, did not have a formal, officially declared, this is the official national flag. And that, surprisingly, weirdly, you might not know this, but that persisted for almost 115 years. So throughout almost the entirety of the 20th century, there was no official Japanese national flag. The Hinomaru was often associated with Japan, but not necessarily and not exclusively. So um, there is a lot of history there and a lot of back and forth and a lot of different things happened. Like, oh, I don't know, the imperial wars of aggression around the Pacific and colonial conquest under the rising sun flag and all these types of things, which I think come up in the story uh, come back in the story later. And then 1945, oh, a couple of, couple of bombs are dropped, a, a peace treaty is signed, the end of World War II, all of that, right? And the beginning of the American Occupation Administration of Japan for the next, at least the next couple of years, um, during which time the Hinomaru flag was restricted from being displayed in a lot of different contexts for a lot of, you know, there was strict um, rules around when and how it could be displayed, and it was not openly displayed. It wasn't flown on government buildings and what have you during that time. That was relaxed in 1947 when Japan adopted its new constitution, more on which later. Um, this issue, though, of, well, what is the uh, what is the national flag? Do we, why don't we have a national flag? This continued to be a thing in the post-war period, but now thoroughly tainted by a J Japanese public that wanted to distance itself from the imperial war aggression of the Im imperial era and was now trying to take a different path. And a lot of people associated the Japanese flag, either the Hinomaru or the Kyokujitsuki, both of them, uh, with war, militarism, that sort of thing. It, ha it had a very deep significance for, for many people. So it was a big domestic political issue between, broadly speaking, the Japanese right and the Japanese left. Domestic political issue. And so in 1974, there was this big push to try to pass a law to actually once again make this the national flag of Japan. Here, the red circle is going to be the national flag, but that there was pushback and it didn't get passed and what have you. This culminated... 
again, a lot of history here, but it culminated in 1999 when the Hiroshima School Board um, mandated that at uh, opening and graduation ceremonies for the school and maybe other certain special events, the schools had to display the Japanese flag and the Japanese national anthem, which, again, was not an official national anthem by law, but the unofficial at that time national anthem, Kimigayo, had to be either sung or at least played during this, the, these types of events. And there was one high school in particular where the principal was trying to sell the teachers on this idea, but the teachers uh, of that school were not having it. They did not want the flag and the anthem. They still associated with that militarism. They were not cooperating. They were not going to do it. And so, again, this is the type of thing that you cannot comprehend if you are not Japanese. Even me living half my life here, it still seems strange. But yes, that high school principal ended up committing suicide over this impasse that he was at. He couldn't get the teachers on board, but he was being mandated he had to do this. So he ended up killing himself before the graduation ceremony. And that, again, opened up this whole can of worms. There's a renewed push. That year, they actually finally passed a law that the Hinomaru, the red circle, is the Japanese national flag, flag officially, and it is, uh, Kimigayo is the official national anthem. And that led the school boards to start putting in various mandates, depending on what prefecture and what school board and what have you. But now, often the flag is mandated to be displayed and Kimigayo is sung or played at school um, ceremonies. It's still, it, I don't know to what extent it's the same issue as it was, say, 20 years ago in that sense, but I do recall in my teaching days, 15 years ago, 12 years ago, whenever it was, I do recall at least a couple of times uh, being at a uh, school event where there was the flag and the, the song and whatever, and there was a teacher that very pointedly did not face away from the flag, did not face the flag, did not sing Kimigayo. So, uh, I don't know if that was uh, necessarily making a political statement, uh, and whether there's retribution for that, because that can be actually mandated against. Anyway, it's this whole political issue, right? And it's not just domestic politics in Japan, of course, since the rising flag sun in particular was the war flag of the army and the navy. It was the flag under which a lot of people in various parts of Asia were colonized. Japanese obviously did uh, atrocious things, could absolutely committed war crimes. They're certainly not the only people to ever commit war crimes, but they certainly did. And uh, that it resulted in uh, obviously a very strong distaste for the Japanese generally among various nations, but specifically th symbols of Japanese militarism like the rising sun flag become a particular point of contention. This leads in the 2010s as part of the geopolitical jockeying and diplomatic relations between Japan and South Korea, this becomes an issue. The South Koreans start raising it as an issue. The flag specifically starts to become an issue. There's weird things happening at, uh, with regards to soccer games, and this spills over in 2018 to an international fleet review that was being hosted by the South Koreans at Jeju Island. And uh, they said to the Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Force, the Japanese Navy, uh, they said to them, if you come to this fleet review with your, you cannot come with your rising sun flag, which is still, throughout this whole time, the rising sun flag had still been the Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Force's flag, so they continued to fly it. Um, but 
And that hadn't been a problem at previous international events, but suddenly in 2018, South Korea is saying, you can't fly that flag. Japan says, hell that, and hell no, that's our flag. We're going to fly it. So it becomes this political issue. It spills over into the 2020 Olympics that were held in 2021. And there was debate with the International Olympic Committee about what flags could or couldn't be f displayed or flown or what have you. It gets, it gets crazy, but... Uh, and then it culminates in these types of, like, pop art explainer videos from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs about, hey, here's the rising sun flag. Do you know the history of this? And then they don't mention anything, really, about this history. I wonder why. But, yeah, it, if you're getting the sense this isn't about a piece of cloth, this is not just about some symbol, it, it's about what it symbolizes, then, yes, I think you're on the right track. Because, clearly, this is about that history, that raw history um, Japanese as well as international relations, domestically and internationally, this is an issue and has been for some time. And so we get to the point of getting into the window of that this provides into the bigger story. And that bigger story we can trace back at least to the American occupation of Japan um, post-World War II. Uh, and it was during that occupation administration that the Japanese constitution was written stewarded over, dictated by the American occupiers. And it's an interesting document, if you look at it in its context. Here it is in English. Um, it is widely available. You can go read it for yourself. It's not even that long, so you could read through it in a short time. Um, but in addition to, uh, for example, delimiting the role of the emperor and basically saying, hey guys, the emperor is no longer a god, a literal god to be worshipped. Um, now the emperor shall perform only such acts in matters of state as are provided in the constitution, and he shall not have powers related to government. So that was specifically put in there by the Americans. Um, and uh, in addition to creating the, well, not creating the diet, the Japanese diet already existed, but uh, instituting the, the bicameral parliamentary system, which is, continues to be the, the governing system of Japan, um, and in addition to uh, the chapter three on rights and duties of the people, which includes those articles about oh, the freedoms and rights guaranteed to the people by this constitution shall be maintain maintained by the constant endeavor of the people who shall refrain from any abuse of these freedoms. But also the other things about um, enjoying, uh, shall not be prevented from enjoying any of the fundamental human rights. These things, which I looked at back in questions for Corbett number 61, if you cast your mind back to that, you'll remember at that time, um, I was talking specifically about these articles in the Constitution and how people were pointing to them, at least at that time, to say, this is why we can't, we can't have a lockdown in Japan, because rights are guaranteed in the Constitution, guys, so we can't do anything about it. <laughs> Which, I, as I pointed out, that's kind of a weird argument, because pretty much every Constitution, Bill of Rights, Charter of Rights and Freedoms, has some sort of language like this, and it's generally language you can drive... A, uh, a, a Mack truck through because it has the loopholes and a, well, you know, except by right of law or whatever, we can do whatever we want, essentially. They could have done that here in Japan, but they didn't. And that was an interesting part of what was happening here. Anyway, in addition to all of that, here's the meat and potatoes of today's topic. Chapter 2, Renunciation of War, which consists of a single article, Article 9, Aspiring sincerely to an international peace based on justice and order, the Japanese people forever renounce war as a sovereign right of the nation and the threat or use of force as means of settling international disputes. In order to accomplish the aim of the preceding paragraph, land, sea, and air forces, as well as other war potential, 
will never be maintained. The right of belligerency of the state will not be recognized. Uh, that's some pretty remarkable language to have in a constitution. And of course, we have to understand that this was being dictated by the American occupiers to the vanquished Japanese people. And it's, it, this is, I mean, talk about history written by the winners. This is, uh, this is a national constitution written by the winners. You guys are going to forever renounce war. <laughs> you will never have any sort of military ever again. You will completely renounce the, the right of belligerency of the state. If only they'd actually pushed that through to its logical conclusion and we were living in an anarchist utopia right now, but... Sadly, they, they didn't quite mean it in that way. But still, this is incredible language to have embedded in a constitution. But, you know, obviously, it's not... They didn't quite... I mean, come on, guys. They're not really going to not have a military. No, they're not going to have a military. They're going to have a self-defense force, right? Yes, yeah, so this is the loophole that they've used. They have a very large, very well-funded, very well-equipped modern military that they don't call the military. It's called the Self-Defense Force. That is the weird euphemism for Navy that Patrick was noting in his question, the Maritime Self-Defense Force. There's also the Ground Self-Defense Force. It's, it's the Navy. It's the Army under another name. And that is, that is the fundamental trick that has been played here. So you might recall back in uh, May of 2018, I was writing about this quite specifically in an article on Japan's stealth army. But if not, um, I suggest you go back and read, read that article. It's got a lot of important information on this su subject in particular, including specifics about the activation of a merit, mer marine unit. Um, the Japan Ground Self-Deforce activated a 1,500-man unit known as the Amphibious Rapid Deployment Brigade. The occasion was marked by a ceremony at Sasebo Military Base on the island of Kyushu. This wouldn't exactly be major groundbreaking news in most countries most of the time. Okay, so they started a new, one new active marine unit. No, 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 but this is, this is a big deal in a country without a military, right? Um, it's a sign that things are changing. And so I wrote about that in that J Japan Stealth Army article where I wrote, not that Article 9 has ever really stopped Japan from possessing land, sea, and air forces, of course. The government just rebranded those forces as self-defense forces and said they were exclusively for self-defense and peacekeeping. But riddle me this. If Japan really is a pacifist nation that has forever renounced war, why is it ranked 8th in the world in terms of military expenditures? The answer, of course, is that the Japan Self-Defense Force, JSDF, is a stealth army. Just flip a switch and the pacifist nation of Japan would be one of the world's largest military powers overnight. Consider that the JSDF is ranked as the 18th largest military in the world with 247,150 active personnel. Not bad for a country with no military, hey? And again, if you go through that article, you'll see lots of different pieces of evidence that I cite in uh, backing up what I was talking about there from the secret nuke program that I talked about with uh, Joseph Trento in the program many years ago to other such things. But it all revolves around this, essentially this uh, wink, wink, nod, nod. No, we don't. Come on. We don't have a military. We have a self-defense force, right, guys? Which is ultimately such, I mean, it's such a stupid obvious lie. No one believes it. It is an active joke to the point where in 2008, uh, sorry, 2021, just last year, uh, you get this from military.com. 
With a wink and a nod, Japan has an aircraft carrier again, which notes that when Navy Secretary Carlos del Toro returned from his trip to Japan, he fired off a tweet that touted his tour of that country's aircraft carrier, Izumo. It was a short comment that recognized an important new naval reality for the longtime ally. Japan's pacifist constitution meant its naval forces have relied on ships carrying helicopters for self-defense, not fighter jets. And it avoided using the term aircraft carrier since the end of World War II. Del Toro, whether intentionally or not, gave a public U.S. acknowledgement of a historic shift by Tokyo towards its past as a carrier power. Late in 2018, the Japanese announced plans to refit two helicopter carriers, including the Izumo, for U.S.-built F-35B Lightning II fighters, part of an increasingly urgent effort to counter growing Chinese sea power. So, essentially, oops, did I say that? Cats out of the bag. Yeah, oh, these are, these are aircraft carriers. Am I allowed to say that? Because they are. But even the fact that this is this whole kabuki dance of, oh, it's not an aircraft carrier, it's helicopter carrier for self-defense. That's what it is. Sure, guys. Oh, and oh, by the way, it can hold aircraft. Yeah, of course. And we are buying all these F-35Bs. And yeah, we will put them on these helicopter carriers. But oh, did I call it an aircraft carrier? Oops. The reason I think why this is happening is the mask is coming off now. Getting to the heart of Patrick's question, is the Empire Awakening? The answer, I think, is yes. The self-defense force is very much not only being in reality, but actively coming out as, oh, this is a military. Because, of course, of the ramping up of tensions that are going on right now. And clearly, Japan is more and more trying to signal to China and, I suppose, to some extent, North Korea... No, we're a real military. We got real, you know, this is this is for real. You, you know, guys, watch out. And in case there was any doubt about that, you can go to asiatimes.com um, from back in August. Japan wants to point 1,000 cruise missiles at China. Um, talking about the deployment of 1,000 long-range cruise missiles to improve its counter Japan's counter-strike capabilities against China. Um, they will be modified from the Japan Ground Self-Defense Forces the Army's Type 12 subsonic anti-ship missiles increasing the range from 100 to 1,000 kilometers and are planned to be based on Japan's Southwest Islands and Kyushu. So you can read more about that. But yeah, there's no subtlety here. There's no there's no subtle dance of this strategic ambiguity like, like uh, uh, does Israel have nuclear weapons? Who can say? I don't know. I Officially, they don't have any, right? <laughs> this stupid kabuki dance of strategic ambiguity that they do about Israel's nuclear weapons. If you want to know more about that, you can see my previous report on the real Middle East nuclear threat that I did a few years ago. Um, but anyway, it's the exact same type of thing. And it's becoming more and more obvious that they're, they're again, they're not trying to hide it anymore. Japan is building the biggest warships in Asia, two 20,000-ton super destroyers, um, which are part of a re reinvigorated Japanese fleet that includes some of the best submarines in the world and a new pair of aircraft carriers. Again, outright calling them aircraft carriers because that's what they are. Uh, Japan to build Aegis-equipped ballistic missile defense warships. Talking about these trillion yen um, ships, $7.1 billion ships, that will be Aegis system-equipped vessels. As an alternative to the Aegis Ashore system, which were the land-based systems, the missile defense systems that uh, the Japanese government canceled back in 2020, oh, maybe they're stepping back from this. Maybe they're not remilitarized. No, they're just going to put them on ships instead. Um, 
again, uh, April of this year, it was confirmed. Yes, the, uh, the, uh, Japan has started its conversion of second Izumo helicopter carrier. So they are proceeding with that. And uh, also, by the way, UK and Japan teaming up to develop next-generation fighter engines because, yes, the F-35Bs aren't quite going to cut it. So Japan and the UK have decided to collaborate on next-generation fighter jets, pooling their technology and resources to get the greatest bang for their yen? Pound? Money. Uh, Japan's FX program and the United Kingdom's Tempest, both of which are scheduled to fly in the early 2030s, will be the world's first Sixth generation fighters. Cool, because the F-35s weren't enough of a boondoggle. Now, UK and Japan want in on the act. Well, that's exactly what they're going to do. And that, of course, all is swirling around this incredible new upping of defense spending that has at least been proposed here in Japan in uh, recent, uh, recent days. Japan eyes upping defense spending to $279 billion over five years. And that's up from, uh, well, 40 trillion yen, um, up from 27.47 trillion for the five-year period ending 2023. So <clears throat> a significant increase, not quite a doubling, but a significant increase is taking place throughout the region and specifically here in Japan as well. And I wonder why, because it's not just about the uh, military um, upgrades, not just about hardware and fighter jets and what have you, as Global Times, the Chinese propaganda mouthpiece, points out, Japan weighs up amassing missiles, ramping up cognitive warfare capability amid cross-straits tensions. And in this article, obviously from the Chinese perspective, talking about um, hyping national security concerns amid mounting Taiwan Straits tensions, Japan is reportedly mulling the deployment of more than 1,000 long-range missiles capable of reaching foreign soil in a move to close the missile gap with China, as we already saw, but also ramping up efforts in the cognitive domain to better cope with information warfare launched by enemies with an emphasis on the Chinese language, talking um, all about <coughs> how the new, the new battle space is essentially going to be online information warfare, misinformation, cognitive warfare, um, and Japan is getting ready for that, and they're talking more and more about that and starting to bring it into their national security strategy, their officially announced strategy and all of this. So, <coughs> obviously, China starting to notice these types of things and starting to talk about them. And, yes, of course, Japan needs a cyber ministry, former JGSDF Major General, so Tokyo needs to establish a cyber ministry to oversee and defend the nation's cybersecurity infrastructure against threats. So, of course, the exact types of conversations that are happening all throughout NATO countries and and in the BRICS block is happening in Japan as well. Uh, you know, cyber domain, cognitive warfare, information battle space, all of the things that uh, you might might sound familiar because they all sound like this fifth generation warfare or whatever who's counting, that uh, that I've been talking about and that others have been noting is happening right now. Along the merry path towards World War III. <laughs> hey guys, how how's it going? Yes, as, as I think my listeners will be well situated to understand, this is part of a growing push towards the ramping up of tensions on every level that could kick off really anywhere. Hey, Taiwan, maybe, why not? That's another place to keep your eye on, and one that obviously people here in the Asia-Pacific region have been watching carefully for the past couple of months, and there's a lot of indications that that might be part of a longer-term 
strategy slash thing that is going to eventuate and who knows maybe that'll be combined with something that russia is doing in the european theater and whatever the all swirling around but all swirling around this idea that the battle lines are forming for world war three now i have talked about that before and perhaps the first place you want to go um on that discussion would be how will world war three be fought the previous questions for corbett episode that is in the best of the corbett report on the sidebar of the site i would suggest you check it out because there's some important things to note about this the controlled both sides opposition phony nature of this this conflict which is being engineered into existence in the same way World War One, World War Two, Cold War, there's a lot of parallels going on. I have had a lot to say about them in the past. I will have a lot more to say in the future. But long story short, tying the bow on it for today, and for Patrick's question specifically from today, is the Empire awakening? Is, is something happening here? Is this cartoony propaganda from the Japanese Ministry of Foreign Affairs, does it mean something a little bit more than what it appears on the surface is there is there something behind the sort of creepy factor of it yes there is there's a lot and there's a lot to be said about the history and the history written by the winners and and what it really means and war crimes and atrocities and who did what and all of that but i'm just letting you know this is this is a much bigger issue than you might think at first glance so uh, patrick thank you for bringing this to our attention uh there's an awful lot of stuff that people can get into if they are interested in this topic. And you could start by going to the show notes uh, for today's episode of Questions for Corbett at CorbettReport.com slash QFC dash Empire, where you can see all of the various articles and things that I'm linking to today and start to start to get a grasp on the deeper issue of what we're dealing with. I didn't. I bet you didn't expect it to go there from that question, did you? Anyway, this is the Corbett Report. This is what we do. This is what I do, anyway. And uh, I'm looking forward to doing it again with you in the near future, but that's going to do it for today. James Corbett, CorbettReport.com. Talk to you again very shortly.